Hey everyone, how are you doing? You're listening to the Folk Rooster Podcast. This is episode six. My name is Caleb. As always, I'm here with Rob. Hey everybody. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great, Caleb. How is your day today? It is very good. <laughs> uh, well, today let's get to what we're talking about, and it's it's kind of big. It's uh, nerve wracking for me because I am not a financial person. But today we're talking about startups and finances, and we're going to build to venture capitalism. Uh, Rob, tell us about uh, who our guest is today that's going to teach us a little bit about what venture capitalism is. Hey, we're with Eric Northern today. Had a really good conversation with him. Eric is the general partner of SK Ventures, the Venture Capital Fund, and he is also the owner and operator of two technology conferences. So if we have somebody who knows about startups, this is the guy. And venture capitalism, well, he runs one. Awesome. But before we get there, uh, I, we got to mention we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, we are on Instagram. We have a new video on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I eat uh, cricket flour. Um, and then go to folkrooster.com because we've got really great written content. We have a, a new piece from Christina Taylor um, about the Sean Penn interview uh, with 60 Minutes. So go to folkrooster.com to check it out. Rob, you ready? Let's do it. We are a startup. Yes. We are here starting up our podcast and our website. Are we not, Caleb? We are. Um, it's weird to say that. It's very weird to say that. We are a startup. We are working nights and weekends on a different project other than our jobs. We're holding full-time jobs. You're going to grad school. Congratulations on that, by the way. Yep. I'm I'm like a busy adult. Never thought it'd be one of those. You're living with another human. You got a dog. You're going to grad school. You got a full-time job. You got a side project. You have a startup. Start and 12 kids. <laughs> and no kids. And no kids. Yeah. It's weird to think about it. It's weird to think that we're a startup. Yeah. Um, you know, where, what do we, what do we, where do we go from here? Well, maybe we're a different kind of startup. Yeah. We're kind of like a dirty food truck that you see at 12 in the morning after you've been to the bars. The guys are just out there doing it. Yeah. Just doing their thing. Don't need a, a rating. I think this podcast is kind of hijacked a little bit from something you, you inspired me to listen, which is the startup podcast by Gimlet. Gimlet Media, shout out. Yeah, so the startup podcast, I'm I'm five episodes in, you're caught up. And yeah, I'm I'm up to date. So they're going through the exact thing the same things we went through. You know, you can be put off by their success. Obviously, one of the people in startup, he was with this American life. Have you ever heard of that one? Yes. Yeah. The the only yeah, the best radio show ever. Literally the U two of podcasts. The U two of of radio and and audio entertainment. So you said something interesting to me when we first started this venture about podcasts. What was that? What was that line? Oh, I said that, uh, podcasting is, uh, podcasts are the new garage band. And I would, I would dare someone to argue that it is not. I completely agree. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I never thought of it in that realm before because we are listening to start his new venture and it's oddly familiar, everything that he went through. So we don't have to be on the same level or have the same amount of funding as this person to realize the same growing pains. Thusly, we are a startup. 
Um, and and I, I think if you look at our history, you know, I've done this is my fourth podcast. Um, I also host another podcast for work, and I feel like I feel like garage band status. Like, oh yeah, no, I play with this band. They kind of do um, blues blues and metal fusion and then i gotta play I, I play for the church on sundays and uh you know one of those things i'm hoping it'll catch on you know that's hilarious i, I hope so no i i have this is my third podcast i also have two failed blogs so <laughs> i'm going in three and three okay so i mean yeah no we say we're a startup and, and we we are we have startup qualities but um, one, we're not doing this for money and we're not doing it with any backing of any sort. This is kind of just us. I mean, it, it is, it's a ho- it's like an advanced hobby that I think we'd like to take to another arena. So, you know, maybe looking, look, 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 let's look forward and go, okay. And now we're opening, <laughs> we're opening this up to listeners. Um, but where do we go from here? So like in a year, where does that, where are we and how did, how did we get there? What does that look like to you? I see 20 contributors to the website. I see 30 plus podcasts where we interview interesting people and 10, 15 more mini casts where we just talk about what's going well. I see a follower base as long as we put in the work and develop the content and the imagery and keep it fresh. Is that a platform in which to take another step and leave our jobs, find advertising revenue, find people to make music for us, hire a producer, have a travel budget, and and make it a little bigger? That seems, what's the word? That seems far, but is cool to think, and is definitely like a cool thing to think about and helpful in pushing or motivating or, you know, to lay out a map, I guess, you know, where it's like, if we didn't hit that, that would, I think where we'd be, where we'd, wherever we'd end up would be okay. Cause it would be much better than where we are and were. Financially, we have to get to a place where it's sink or swim. Like we either go out there and we make this successful or we don't, but we failed trying. And that means no jobs, no no income security, right? That means going out and getting funding. Could we get funding? Do we know how to do that? Maybe and no. <laughs> That's me speaking for myself. Well, the person we have on today can give us an idea, an understanding of next level funding for startups. Yes. And venture capitalism. Is that a model that is sustainable for a local or regional podcast? Then once it becomes something more? From from what I know, I don't think so. But because those guys are like they want Twitter, they want to invest in Twitter and Uber and whatever those those things are in the future. It's a very interesting world. And I'm super pumped to talk talk to Eric about this. Okay, so we're talking about upper echelon investors for tech companies, right? Right. Which we're not a we were not a we're not a tech company. We're not. We're not going to go to Chris Saga. We're not going to go to Andrew Mason of uh, the former Groupon CEO, which is who startup approached. We may find somebody like Andrew Mason, or we might find a group of people who our endeavor pushes their mission forward, 
or they may get they may invest in us because they don't really care what our folk rooster does, but they might want our skill set as a as a consultant to them. So we might we might find a niche of investment. Is that you, you think that's plausible? Yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. I think that's more realistic. Twitter, uh, I think, from what I learned from from the podcast from the startup podcast, uh, started as a it either started as a par- podcast or a podcasting platform, and had to pivot at some point and become what it is now or when it started. Okay, interesting question. What are we? Well, we started as a podcast, and we're not just a podcast anymore. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we have uh, so far two contributors. Uh, who do written content on Fogrister.com. Uh We have this podcast, and you know we've just posted a YouTube video that's kind of totally different than what we're what we're doing anywhere else. So we're a hobby media company. Again, we're a startup. I think we are. We're working hard at our other jobs. We got other commitments throughout the days and weeks and months, and here we are. We're doing something that we like to do, that we love to do, and. You know, coming up next, we're going to talk to somebody who gives a lot of money to people with the same mentality we do. They have a little bit different skill set. Hey, everyone. This is the time when we talk about our favorite things kind of the these are just things that we really like these aren't advertisements um just stuff that we think is really cool that you should hear about rob what's your favorite one of your favorite things this week well caleb i recently retired an old pair of brooks shoes and i got a new pair of brooks shoes so i figured hey you know what this is the time the platform i say go buy brooks shoes if you like to run or walk or work out or whatever you want to do I am. Uh, I'm an endorser. I love them. And what are they like? I mean, what are they? Running shoes? Or they? Yeah, it's a company that just makes running and walking shoes. They don't make any other kinds. They don't make. They don't make basketball shoes. They don't make loafers. They don't make cross trainers. They they make running shoes, and they definitely get the Rob seal of approval. Uh, well, my favorite thing this week. I just got it, and I'm so pumped. It's a Ninja Ultima something kitchen blender no it's the ninja ultima kitchen because it's not just the blender it's like the blender and then it comes with like a food processor attachment and a dough uh like a dough blade and a billion other things and i'm going to be making um uh, garlic paste i'm going to be making pizza dough i'm going to be making cauliflower crust stuff um and obviously like protein smoothies and all that jazz it, uh, you know, removes like all the, if you've ever had just like your cheap $20 blender and it gets like little ice bits in it, this like removes all that. You get like super smooth, super amazing stuff. It's the Ninja brand Ultima Kitchen. Uh, check it out. All right, we're back here on Folk Rooster with our very special guest. His name is Eric Norland, general partner of SK Ventures and owner and operator of Defrag and Glue Tech Conferences. I feel like we need to have like a, a clap, like a, an audience, you know, it was like such a big intro. Like, like there needs clap. to be like, yeah, like, well, no, like a, like you're in an auditorium at a conference, <laughs> you know, maybe if we could do an audio laser light show. So we bring in Eric for a very, um, 
ominous term, and that term is venture capitalism and also investing. Eric, just first off, we kind of talked about this, uh, you know, in the non-recorded part, but this is a community college lecture class. We're bringing you in. We have no idea about finance or what to do with our money, other than you know, spend it on groceries. So, what is a venture capitalist, and can I be one? Uh, well, that's two questions. So, let me start with what is a venture capitalist. So. A venture capitalist is someone that runs, oddly enough, a venture capital fund. So if you want to think about what a venture capital fund is, uh, it's helpful to think about it on a broad spectrum of investment possibilities. So everyone's familiar with the public stock markets like the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ stock market. So those are publicly traded stocks and bonds uh, or commodities and futures and options, if you want to talk in those terms. Uh, which means that, you know, I wake up tomorrow and I decide that I now hate my stock in General Electric or General Motors or Twitter or Microsoft. I can just go on and sell my 100 million shares and bank my $42 billion and go away. Um, and the only thing that I need is is someone that's willing to buy it from me on the stock exchange. But stock exchanges and public markets are known for being what's called liquid, uh, which is to say that if you're not in a position where the financial market is crashing, um, then normally you can sell your stock or your bond, or your mutual fund, or whatever it is, in a relatively short amount of time, uh, and get your money whenever you want it. Right. So the key, the key to public markets, you think about it in terms of venture capital, is that they're liquid. They're, they have liquidity. And if you move from that side of the spectrum towards venture capital, you move into what's called illiquid assets. Right. So, for instance, you buy a house. It's much more illiquid than the stock market because it takes you time to sell your house, and it doesn't matter if you want to sell it. You're waiting for a buyer to show up. So there's a, you can't force the sale, right? You put your house on the market. It takes three days. It takes three months. It takes three years. If it was 2008, it may not sell at all and you give it back to the bank. It's an illiquid asset. You don't have control. And what venture capital is, is something that exists in the larger world of what's known as private equity, um, where we make quote unquote alternative, alternative investments in illiquid things. So we literally invest in, technology companies um, that we cannot sell when we want. We can only sell if they're acquired or if they exit, and they exit by going public to the public stock markets, and then we can get out. Uh, and that's what a venture capital fund does. Is that incredibly confusing? No, th- that's great. I think Caleb Test is on uh, was on Monday. So there will be a quiz. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, we, was I supposed to bring a notebook? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, that was actually really helpful. Eric, give us a good example of maybe like a really like what's the top echelon or maybe the most um, known venture capital fund like what would the common people know that has been has been purchased through or, or invested through a venture capitalist and, and, and is in the news or something like that so um, well everybody if you've seen the movie The Social Network um, then you know about uh, Facebook and Peter Thiel right and uh, and that kind of whole story so um, you know, there have been people who invested in Facebook when it was a private company. They were venture capitalists uh, that bought a share of the company. And when Facebook went public, they, they made billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, probably the more recent one that, that people may not be really familiar with his name, but he's actually, I think, becoming more famous because he's now on Shark Tank with Mark Cuban, is a guy named Chris Saka, who, uh, who used to spend his days running what's called lowercase capital, which was his venture capital fund. He's now brought in a partner and spends less time on it, I think, on a day-to-day basis, as far as I know. Uh, But Chris had a relatively small fund and went out and invested in Twitter, Yelp, 
Uber, Airbnb, and something else I'm forgetting. Etsy, maybe not Etsy. I don't know. A bunch of stuff that everybody knows, right? And, uh, and got insanely rich uh, in a pretty short period of time. Um, like, like took 10 million and made it a billion kind of rich, that sort of rich. Um, so, so that's kind of a, a fairly well-known story. And Twitter was really his big success. Like he went out and loaded up on Twitter stock, bought it from employees that he got permission from the board and did what's called a secondary where he was able to buy employee stock and buy all and just loaded up on stock. So when they went public, it was just crazy. So, uh, that's probably a well-known one. I think there are other firms that people might've heard of. Um, Union Square Ventures out of New York uh, has Fred Wilson and Albert Wenger, uh, and they've invested in a lot of stuff everyone would know. They, they were investors in Twitter and Etsy and Tumblr and uh, I don't even know, a bunch of stuff like that. There's names like that that I think people recognize the companies more than they recognize the, the venture capitalists behind them, uh, unless you're you know a stupid nerd like me who spends all of his days <laughs> worrying about that stuff. Well, and, and so I hear this, million to a billion, and I go, hey, I can be that guy. I can make those. <laughs> I can make those armchair calls. Like, what does it actually take to do that? Because you, you know, you simplified it for us, and and then you give us the story. Chris Saka. I, I, I know that I'm familiar with that story. I'm sure many who are listening who are as well. But uh, what's what's that average story look like? So, without trashing the entire industry, I mean, there have been a couple studies that says the average VC actually fails um, or doesn't do very well or barely returns the funds money. Uh, side note, by the way, really fun Chris Saka story. So he was actually at Defrag, one of our conferences one year, and he was, it was before he'd gotten to be a venture capitalist. He was on stage and he was working on the Obama campaign and specifically on their technology side. And he launched into this rant about somebody at a, at a rally and he just started using the word douchebag over and over and over, <laughs> like, like 25 times on stage in a three minute period, probably. Uh, so that's how I got to know Chris. Anyway, so um, so what it takes is first you have to uh, go raise money from rich people who want to trust you enough to invest their money for them. So a venture capital fund uh, has normally a 10-year lifespan. So if you're rich guy X and you decide to commit a million dollars to a venture capital fund, when you commit that million, um, you cannot get your money out until things sell or that 10-year period comes up. I'm simplifying. It's illegally a bit more complex than that, but simplifying. Um, so your money's stuck, right? And, and if you don't give the full million after you said you would, you can literally lose all the money you put in uh, through various legal maneuvers. So it's, it's a very illiquid asset in that sense, right? So what you're looking for if you're a rich guy X is someone that's going to return, this is the goal of the industry, three to five X on your money in that 10-year period. So if I can take your million dollars and after fees and other stuff, uh, net cash on cash is the term, turn it into $5 million, then effectively, no matter what the stock market does, I've beaten the stock market over that same 10-year time frame. Right? So that's kind of the goal. So how do you get to that goal if you're a VC? So you got a fund, you go out and you make 30 investments, Investments over a three to four year time frame. You know full well at least 10 of those investments are going to lose all your money. All of it. I mean, not a dime back, right? Just going under. So if you're investing $100 million and you take and you put $33 million into those 10 that are going under, that $33 million evaporates. It's gone. 
the other, the, the second 10 out of this 30 investments that you make are probably going to come back and break even, right? So you take $33 million, you put it into the second 10 companies, that group of companies breaks even, you get $33 million back. You haven't done, you haven't made any, you haven't lost any, but with the time value of money and inflation, you're actually losing money, so you're behind the eight ball already, right? So you got 10 companies left that you need to succeed and make your whole fund. On average, these successful companies out of your 30 are going to do somewhere in the 5 to 7x range, which sounds great, except when you take the other 20 that haven't gotten you what you needed, if they just do that, you never get to where you need to be. So on the grand scheme of things, you need one or two companies in every fund that doesn't do 5x or 7x, but does 10, 20, 30, or 100x. And then all of a sudden, you begin to achieve numbers where you can return you know, 5x someone's money or 7x someone's money over a 10-year time period. So the first step to being a venture capitalist is to wake up every day and know that eight times out of 10, you're going to fail. right? Like in, so you have to get really, really used to losing money and having a shitty day. That's like step one. And <laughs> step two, you have to get good enough at pattern recognition and figuring out out where you want to be invested to find those 10 out of 30 companies that actually give you a mathematical shot of hitting the $1.3 billion Powerball. So, okay, you're speaking in millions, and I I went broke buying the microphone that I'm talking to you through. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm really curious in, and I don't know what point you started doing that you actually became a venture capitalist, but yeah. What was it like before, uh, and how maybe how did you get there? If you can, if, the, if there's a story there, yeah, we'd love to hear what Ivy League school you went to in uh, your uh, field of study. <laughs> yeah, so I graduated from Stanford. I was in Oxford. No, I didn't do any of that actually. Uh, so I went to the University of Wisconsin Madison, which is best known for a degree program in rooting for the Badgers and drinking too much beer. Uh, got a degree in nothing useful whatsoever. Was in the Navy, got out of the Navy, stumbled my way in tech, into technology. Uh, got stupid enough back in 2001 to join a startup and start a technology conference, which grew up without us knowing what we were doing all that much, uh, which we sold in 2005, by which point I had met my then almost fiance, now wife, Sold the company, moved to Florida, uh, worked out the contract on that company because when you sell a company, you always have to go work for the parent company for like a, an awful 18 to 24 months. And then started two more tech companies, uh, which fortunately made a good, good amount of money. So I found myself in 2011, having spent like three or four years kind of watching these startups that I thought were really interesting go on and get bought, uh, saying, you know, I should really be putting money in these things versus just watching other people make money by putting money in these things. Uh, and my partner, Paul Kodrowski, and I formed SK Ventures at that point in time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just, it's, it's not like, I think some people set out to be VCs, you know, they like get the MBA and, and go work for a firm and do the internship thing. But more often than not, I think the, the really interesting venture capitalists uh, the Brad Felds and the Chris Sackas of the world um, don't set out to be v VCs and have success in other areas and then find themselves applying what they learned uh, to become investors. So if you look and you say, you know, in the, in the early days of venture capital, by early days, I mean like the late 70s, they, they were, you know, kind of the Mitt Romney's of the world, right? Like blue <laughs> right. blood, 
went to the right school, family that always been in this kind of business, they got into it. And as venture capital is involved or evolved, you know, Brad was a student, Brad Feld was a student at MIT, sold a company when he was 24, 25, worked on some other things, stumbled into venture capital. Chris Saka was at Google, like, you know, worked on the search engine and then stumbled into venture capital. Josh Elman, who's at Greylock, um, was at Facebook, no, he was at AOL and then Facebook and then Twitter running product. He was like a director of product management type stuff. Uh, and now he got hired by Greylock and he's a VC. So more often than not, becoming a VC is something you don't set out to do. When was the first time you said, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go for this. I think I'm going to try and do what they're doing or what I'm seeing. Yeah, it was actually kind of a, like a, almost a mistake. So <laughs> I was, uh, I was on the phone with Brad Feld from Foundry Group and I was kind of talking about this idea that Paul and I were kicking around about starting a smaller, you know, kind of what's known as a micro VC fund. Um, and Brad's a fairly well-known venture capitalist who's had a lot of success and, um, and is worth far more than most people I know. Uh, and, and I said, you know, oh, Paul and I are thinking about this, and I'm thinking about doing this, and I think it might be kind of interesting. And, and Brad said, I think that's a great idea. I'll be your first LP. I'll explain what LP is in a second. LP is a limited partner. So he literally on the okay. phone committed to be my first investor in the fund. Um, and I said, gee, that's great. How much are you going to give me? And he said, I'll give you $100,000 for the first one. Right. So that was like, okay, so now we've got something. Um, so from there, it was really like you, you do this strange process of, okay, I need to write some sort of executive summary that explains why you would want to give me a hundred, 200, 500, a million over everyone else you could give that money to. And then you, you go to a law firm that specializes in venture capital and they say, that's great. We can set this up for you. That'll cost $50,000. You just work your way through the process and ask people that you know that are already that. And the next thing you know, you have a venture capital fund. And, and, you know, I'm sitting in Boulder at the Techstars demo day watching these, these college students demo stuff on a stage. And out walks this company called Orbotics. It's these two guys um, from MIT, oddly enough, who had decided they were going to do a startup and they were going to build a robotic ball that you could control and roll around on the floor with your phone. So this is in 2000, I think it's late 2010, somewhere around there. Um, and, and I was like, that's awesome. Like that is, that's the first investment. It's a robotic ball you control with your phone. I mean, that's just nice. cool shit, right? And that company, of course, ended up becoming Sphero, which ended up becoming the right. BB-8, which is in the new Star Wars movie. Yeah, right. right. You can't turn on your TV without seeing it. Yeah, exactly. So it's no. literally, I mean, it's just like weird, twisty passages that end up there. And why I would be terrible at what you do is Rob actually showed me, he has the Sphero pre-BB-8, and he showed it to me, and I remember going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and then we played for it for like 30 minutes. Like, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Well, yeah. let, me, let me see. Let me, let, me t- let me see that. That was actually my exact reaction to Twitter. Like I wasn't right. on Twitter in 2007 and these two guys signed me up for it. And I was like, why the fuck do I need Twitter? Right. And they're like, no, 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 it's really cool. You're going to love it. And I went on, I'm like, this is idiotic. Like 140 <laughs> characters, you know, like, no, we blog, we write long form things, right? They're right. elegant. And then three weeks later, I'm like, how are you not on Twitter? It's the most amazing thing ever. So. <laughs> Is anybody who invests, are they a venture capitalist or is it just the person who controls it? Can you give us a little bit of that? Yeah. So, 
there are two terms to know in the structure of venture capital fund. There's what's called a, and you can hear them called different things, but generally speaking, there's a general partner, which is what I am, and there's a limited partner. Okay, so a venture capital fund, its legal structure is it's a partnership. And the limited partners are the people that are the investors in the fund, um, and they agree to give you a certain amount of money for a certain period of time, and they, they get what's known as a limited partners agreement, which is like 187 pages of legal crap that they have to read through and agree to, and it lays out the terms of what you're allowed to do and what the terms are of the fund and when it will end and how the exit thing's handled and how taxes are handled and all that. And if they sign on the dotted line and write their social security number down, they become a limited partner. Um, and in order to be a limited partner in a venture capital fund in the United States of America, you have to be what's called an accredited investor. So an accredited investor is someone who makes at least $250,000 a year for the last three years with the reasonable expectation of making that going forward or has at least a million dollars in net assets, not including their primary residence. So let me um, ask you this, Eric. So that looks like it's the number one thing that separates venture capitalism, uh, you know, investments in that area with the common man and yes. his investing. Yes. The, the Jobs Act that was signed into law by President Obama, I think, what, a year and a half ago, uh, alters that just a little bit. But, but it's still, you know, in the venture capital world, the SEC has determined that if you're not already rich, you're not smart enough to understand the risk of a venture capital fund, right? So, well, what's your what's your stance on that? I know it's, we're kind of cut into <laughs> something philosophical. I, I feel like I feel like I'm smart enough to put five thousand dollars on a robot. Like I, don't, I think I think most people, uh, you know, especially most people who are college educated, can grasp the things. I think the government is trying to protect the average investor from you know the bernie madoffs and the ponzi scams and all those things of the world and and the truth is if someone that i didn't know walked up to me and threw an lpa a limited partner agreement in front of me for anything real estate venture capital private equity anything and said hey invest with me you'd kind of be stupid to do it right like you invest in things because you you know somebody that you trust who says i trust this guy or something right there's some sort of warm connection already there. Um, and the funds that are raised off the backs of people that are just investing with people they don't know tend to be the ones where people get in trouble. So without getting too sidetracked. So that's a limited partner. They're the investors. A general partner is what Paul and I are. We're the people that control the fund. We manage the money. We handle the annual audits with accounting firms. We invest the money. We do the reporting. We, we work with the in- things that we invest in. And we sit on boards, we advise entrepreneurs, we listen to, you know, 50 pitches a week or 75 pitches, whatever it is. We say no 99% of the time. Um, And so the way the structure then works is a limited partner puts their money into the fund and is looking for a 3 to 5x, ideally, over a 10-year period. The general partner makes money two ways. We get paid a management fee, which the industry standard for us is normally about 2% of total capital raised on a yearly basis. So if a fund is uh, $100 million, then 2% of that would be $2 million per year in management fees. Um, and that those fees handle everything from office staff to uh, office space to partner salaries to whatever that is. That's one way that, that we make money. That's and then some, the second- That's some walking around money. It's walking around money. The second more important <laughs> way that we make money is we have what's called 
carried interest, which is actually now a political topic since Hillary Clinton keeps bringing it up. Um, it's the the now often heralded tax loophole that those crazy venture capitalists use to get away with not paying any taxes. The way that works is carried interest is if you have a hundred million dollar fund and you invest all hundred million dollars of that fund and then you begin to get money back in returns, right? In exits. And when you reach a hundred million, now you've returned the fund. That's what we call it. You've returned the fund to the investors, which means if someone gave you a million, you've now given them a million back but you're not done. You're still earning returns. So anything over that original amount of money that was raised, say it was a hundred million. So you give a hundred million back, you've returned a hundred million, anything over and above that hundred million, the general partners, Paul and I keep 20% of that profit. That's how we make our money, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Now the argument is that we should pay normal income taxes on that. Whereas currently it stands that we pay only long-term capital gains. The interesting wrinkle in that is if you think about it, the average time period that a venture capitalist sees the first check from a fund succeeding is seven to eight years from the start of the fund to when they see that first check. Cutting back in here. For our favorite things, number two, Caleb, what else is on your list? I just bought a shirt from this company. They're called Ripped Apparel. It's R-I-P-T apparel.com. And what they do is they take three designs from users of the site. They go on sale for that day. They're $11. Usually take like pop culture things and do mashups or interesting designs. And uh, they're always kind of fun. They're fun even to look at. So I follow them. I look at them every day. It's Ripped Apparel. Check them out. Caleb, I've been using this stuff for a couple years now. It's called Jack Black Beard Lube. It's a conditioning shave. And it's not Jack Black from School of Rock or Tropic Thunder or Tenacious D. It is a great company out there producing uh, toiletries for, for men. And this shave, I've never gone back. So check it out. Jack Black Beard Lube Conditioning Shave. It is awesome. Would you say it's too legit to quit? I would say it has no quit because it's so legit. Dang. I'm a little ADD and I can't stop thinking about a, a small ball rolling around on stage uh, <laughs> being moved, <laughs> being manipulated by my cell phone. And uh, I know that can't be the craziest pitch you've ever seen. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if there's like just a bizarre pitch. And I I don't even know if you can can give us that. I mean, maybe in general like way. But is there something that you've heard that you're just like, this is insane? Well, I mean, so there's the things that are like insane in a good way and the things that are like bad insane. So one, the bad one, bad insane was. I got a pitch once that was like, um, it was for uh, a jock strap, like a cup that had sensors in it <laughs> like okay. that, that would, would measure the impact and tell you something. And it was like the company name was like Iron Nuts with a Z. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, like there's that kind of bad. And then there's like crazy, insane in a good way bad. So we got a pitch from a company called Firefly Space Systems that said, hey, We've discovered this revolutionary way to put, you know, a rocket in the air, and we think that instead of it costing three hundred million dollars 
to put a commercial satellite in low Earth orbit, we can get it done for about $8 million. And we need $75 million to make that happen or some crazy number. I'm proud of my – and, you know, so you're sitting there going, okay, we're going to invest in a rocket ship. Hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, and this is while like Elon Musk's rockets are like blowing up on TV. Like you're watching that happen, going, "All right, we're going to cut them a really big check." Right? Instead of a rocket, you just see a large money-shaped rocket exploding in midair. <laughs> well, that's what I said to Paul. I said, "I kind of feel like we should just take this money to Vegas and put it on red or black." You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're really going to invest in a rocket ship? All right, that's cool. So there's that stuff, and then. Then there's the pitches where you just like absolutely like uh, we're investors in 3D Robotics, which is a consumer drone company, and that pitch literally was Paul sent me an email that said, "Hey, do you want to invest in Chris Anderson's new drone thing?" And I wrote him back one sentence: "Tell me where to send the check." Like there was no decision to be made; it was just completely obvious. Good, bad, crazy, bad. It's funny you mentioned, and I, I'm gonna mess up the name, but it was Chris Chris Saka, right? Chris Saka, yeah. Chris Saka. Yeah. But he he laid out three or four of these companies that are equally as big now that he totally whiffed on. That he just said, "No, this is dumb." I passed, you know. He passed on these things. Do you have one of those? Do you have one of those things that you you had a chance to to invest in and you passed and it it like exploded in a good way. I mean, for me, there's there's a couple companies where it's like I should have invested in that, and then they get bought for three hundred million like a month later, right. sort of thing. Uh, but they're not necessarily people you'd know. Um, so one of the first investments I looked at, uh, I I was going to invest in, and I hesitated. And they were like, you know what? If you're hesitating, fuck you. And they they kicked me out and wouldn't let me invest. And like seven months later, Salesforce bought them for like three hundred million dollars. Oh, right. So ah. it was one of those like you would have made. 15 times your money in seven months. Just like <laughs> stupid money. Um, I know several people that passed on Uber and like passed on Uber, like Travis, CEO of Uber, is walking around a conference in Hawaii going, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this, like this company that does X, Y, and Z. And the reactions really all the way around the table were like, Dude, that's a taxi company. You're out of your mind. <laughs> right. And, and if you put 10,000 into Uber, at that Hawaii conference when Travis was asking those people that 10,000 is now worth like in the range of 25 to $40 million, right? Like an absolutely insane amount of money. Right. Right. So, you know, the kind of things where it gets hard to sleep. And I know people, I personally know people who passed on Twitter. Oh, it's too expensive. That was their (laughs) thoughts. Way too expensive. I can't invest in that. And then it goes and, you know, becomes Twitter. (laughs) Well, how, how does that change your way of thinking when, I mean, you have to look at something that to everyone else looks like just a, like a, a taxi company. And how do you, I mean, does that change the way you think? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, one of the things that there's some, one of the things we say to ourselves all the time is you can't find great deals if you're not passing on great deals. In other words, you know, if you've whiffed on something that was awesome and you missed it, you have to take comfort in the fact that you saw it in the first place. Like you had the chance because one of the keys to venture capital investing is actually having the opportunity to invest. It's not like the people with these companies just walk around asking everyone, right? So just seeing it, it makes you know, okay, well, I had the chance and I fucked it up, but at least I saw it. That's one thing. And then, you know, kind of the whole, the resolve to invest when it seems absolutely nuts. I mean, 
that's kind of what you specialize in, right? Like you've got to get out on the edge and, and really do weird stuff. Uh, just as an example, we're, we're investigating, investing right now in neurotechnology. Um, so if you've, if you've looked into neurotechnology at all, there are literally um, experiments in labs right now where they can, they can trigger a mouse to move its right leg in Boston, Massachusetts, and send that impulse over the internet to a chip implanted in a mouse's brain in Argentina, and that mouse will move its right leg, right? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, well, and even the even weirder one is they take a mouse and they hook a chip up to the hippocampus in the mouse, and they have it run around a maze and do it like eight or nine times. And you know, mice get better every time they do a maze, and you put the cheese in the same place. They learn. They figure out what's going on, and then they take another mouse that's never been in that maze before and hook that chip that has the memory from the first mouse up to the mouse that's never run it and it runs it in the exact same amount of time right so they've now begun to be able to implant memories um so they're companies uh not well i'd say they're pre-companies they're guys in labs doing crazy things where they're talking about the idea that you could use a hardware software component to bridge a broken hippocampus which is where memories reside um, to be able to do things like restore memories to people who have Alzheimer's. Um, or, or the simplest example, which is kind of the near-term one, which is if there's someone with dementia or Alzheimer's sitting in a hospital room, there will be a button outside, and you, a person walks up, whether it's a caregiver or a nurse or a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter, when they hit that button, it sends an impulse to the person with Alzheimer's brain, and it tells the brain, the next person that walks in this room, you know really well and you should feel good about seeing them. So they may not know your name, and they may not have any memories, but they have this incredibly welcoming reaction to you. So it removes kind of all of the, you know, the, the tension around caregiving, because there's this big problem with dementia where, where the, the lack of recognition turns into anger and resentment, yeah. bitterness, right? So we think that we're getting close where we can actually solve that with software. We can hack the human brain to solve that. Um, so that kind of stuff is like, you know, you hear, you read about it in science fiction books and people go, oh, that's fucking stupid. How you can't invest, you know, we're going to put new memories in people. It's the Matrix, right? It's Total Recall. Yeah. It's, it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. That's the stuff that twins. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> twins, twins, right? It's Danny DeVito. But no, I mean, like, go watch Demolition Man. Everything in that movie came true. It's it's wild. We're actually getting to the point where sex is going to be virtual reality. And a billion <laughs> nerds cheered at their desk. I believe I believe the word for that is Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's that's the stuff where it's like no one believes, and you've got to be willing to walk out on the edge. You got um, some advice for the little guy, Eric? Yeah, Wealthfront disclosure: I'm an investor. Uh, yes. Invest in Wealthfront. Put your money in Wealthfront. So Wealthfront, from my research, is an app, right, that uh, you are allowed to make deposits in and then it invests your money for you? Yes. So Wealthfront is what's called a robo-advisory service, which means there are a bunch of really smart guys in finance who figured out a bunch of algorithms that use um, – index funds and the mutual funds on the stock market, so low-cost ways to invest in the stock market. And they basically ask you like seven or eight questions to determine your risk profile. Uh, and then you just give them the money and they do it all for you. Uh, so they remove all the heavy lifting of what should I invest in, when should I invest in it. And they, they do cool things like at the end of the year, they do what's called tax loss harvesting, which is where they sell your losses so that your tax bills lower. Um, so it's just, you know, it's using algorithms and computers and robots to manage your money instead of 
dumb humans because we're really usually pretty bad at it. Is there a certain like debt age income ratio that people should start investing? Uh, so legally I should probably say that none of this constitutes financial advice and you should seek your own financial advisor. But, um, I would say, uh, I don't know if there's an age. I mean, the earlier that you start investing, the better, right? And the more of your paycheck that you start investing. I mean, for the average person that comes down to like max out your 401ks or open Roth IRAs and, and, you know, realize that driving a shitty car and putting money in the stock market means you're going to have a better retirement. I think sadly, We've kind of reached the point in, in at least in middle class America, where you cannot now, because of the rising cost of college, put a child through school and properly save for your own retirement. So most people who are in their 20s and 30s right now are going to be forced with a decision of, do I intend to put my kid through college and pay for that? Or do I intend to have a retirement? And it's literally like a black or white decision. Like I can have a shitty retirement and eat cat food and my kid can graduate from college debt free or my kid can have $110,000 in college loans and I can have a condo in Boca, right? Like but, that's the choice. I mean, but have you tried cat food? I mean, <laughs> I don't I think it's two cans just the other day. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's crazy. I, I'd actually never considered uh, that's, that's insane. Uh, and how far, how far are we from that? I mean, I think we're there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With the rising cost of college. And I mean, you know, if you talk about what do you need to, to live in retirement now and you look at medical costs and, um, you know, kind of the problem is that we've now reached this point where medicine's so good that we're, we're elongating the lifespan of the average human to the point where you need a tremendous amount of money. I mean, we think retirement age is 65, but Social Security, when they designed Social Security, they put the age of 65, that was the average age of death not the average age of retirement, right? <laughs> so it was supposed to be like, if you live past when most people die, there'll be a safety net. And now we've got this idea that, no, 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 at 65, I retire, and Social Security is there, and that's absolutely not how the system was designed to work. So you know, if you retire at 65 and the average person now living to 85, 20 is a long, that's a lot of years. Oh, I'm going to retire on $700,000. No, you're not. Not comfortably. Nobody. I, it's just impossible. It's just not possible. Uh, not with the way that medical costs are going and how long people are living. And by the time you're 65, I mean, you guys are in your 30s. By the time you're 65, people are going to live to be 112. You know, you can't retire for 60 years. You're going to have to work to 90 or have a billion dollars, right? Like, there's just no other option. So you take healthcare and demographics and all that other stuff. There's no good way to say, oh, I'm going to retire at 65 and my kid's going to Stanford. I mean, I got out of school with $23,000 in student loans. Thankfully, but I don't think that's even possible anymore. Eric, we're going to get you out of here on this one. And I think it's a, it might be a deep question, but it's something that you probably have a really good grasp on. What is your thought on the current startup culture and the state of entrepreneurship uh, in the United States? I'm split on that. So I think, uh, I think, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley and San Francisco and the Bay Area in general, it's really crazy right now. I mean, the average, the average rent in San Francisco for about, uh, I think it's 700 square feet is $3,000 a month. Think about that, $3,000 a month. Uh, you can rent a house on Key West for $3,000 a month. Uh, so we, there's this kind of weird mania around startup culture in the Bay Area right now that doesn't exist other places. I mean, it's some, somewhat in Denver and somewhat in Boston. and uh, So that's like the one level, right? It's like tech startups. And everybody's raising millions and they're worth billions and things are a little nutty and, and things are kind of going sideways and cooling down there. But I think on the broader kind of 
societal scale in America, you know, we're doing a really bad job of, of encouraging uh, small business and entrepreneurship. If you go read the studies from the Kauffman Foundation, you'll see that that despite everything every governor has ever believed, uh, the majority of jobs do not come from getting big companies to open plants in your state. The majority of jobs come from small businesses opening, right? Like 90% or above of all jobs in America come from small businesses. So what we really want to be fostering, no matter what political party we are, is, is small business creation and entrepreneurship. And the simple truth of the matter is that at the federal and state level, we just do a horrible job of that, right? Whether it's through regulation or or just making it harder than it should be, or, or not having, you know, the right kind of educational tracks and training programs in place that let people see how it is they can do that to get off the ground. Um, so I think, you know, in the tech world, yeah, we're fine. There's lots of money. And if you really want to start a business and you have what it takes, you can go raise millions and do that. But, you know, if you're, if you're Joe in Wichita and you really want to open a, a, a microbrewery or a coffee shop or a flower shop or a whatever, you know, good luck, right? It's insanely hard. Uh, what? Huh. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> no, I, no, uh, I, I, the way I thought you were going with, okay, so what, okay, so what do we need to do then? I don't know that there's a good answer to that, you know? I mean, I, I, I wish there was a person I could vote for that came yeah. from like the party of the small, the party of the local. Um, that was all about kind of figuring out what we needed to do to encourage that sort of creation. But I don't think either party does that. And, you know, libertarians kind of by nature don't do that. There's no really good solution there, right? I mean, we don't teach it in high school. We don't teach it in college. And I think we've kind of lost it culturally. It's it's actually a fairly special person that says, I don't need a check. I'm going to go figure this shit out on my own. I have a friend who literally got laid off and said, ah, screw it. I'll start a lawn care business. And bought a lawnmower and built a business and next thing you know, had a business and sold it. But most people don't have like the the backbone to go, holy shit, I'm not going to have a check in two weeks. Is that something that, that can be taught or is that something that we need to encourage? I think it can be taught. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there have been studies done about like, what do you do as a parent if you want to raise an entrepreneur? And most of it is about encouraging risk taking. So you're like getting little Johnny to fall off the swing set's actually a good thing, right? The more that kids yeah. are allowed to climb trees and break arms, the better off they'll be as far as being an entrepreneur. And if they're, they're kind of coddled and told how special they are and given trophies because they played in the softball league and lost, then they probably have no shot. Being an entrepreneur, it's a brutal thing. I mean, there's no, there's no one there to help you. You know, you, you look at these guys who are 24 years old and they're running companies with 20 people and they got to make payroll. And they know that if they don't make payroll, if they don't fundraise, because they're not profitable, if they don't make payroll... There are people with kids and mortgages who are not going to have money to pay those. That's a huge, I mean, most 23, 24-year-olds can't handle that kind of pressure. So it's not, it's not an easy thing, but I think that, you know, there are cultural things, we, steps we could do to kind of change how we view that. Eric, thanks so much for going through all of that for us, uh, teaching us what venture capitalism is now. Caleb and I, our unrunning joke is that we all we know about venture capitalism is from the movie Wedding Crashers. So, and they made t-shirts for homeless people. So I don't think it's the same thing. Thanks again uh, from the folk rooster. And we'll put this up and, and sing your praises from here on out because you're going to make us uh, entrepreneurs and startup millionaires. You're already there. You're, you're running a media company. Perfect. So, thanks so much, Eric. Thanks guys. You need to straighten your pocket.
posture and suck in your gut. Rob, that was awesome. What do you think? Eric really dropped the knowledge. One, I guess I never I never thought about how crazy it would be to be a venture capitalist. Like the stories that or the you know, the things that people would bring forth to you and say, Hey, can you give us our your money to invest in this insane idea? Uh, I'm sure there's like we could like write a book, like compile VCs from around the country who have heard the dumbest or weirdest or craziest pitches, and that would be a very entertaining book. Could you imagine your job every day was to manage that much amount of money and talk talking in those terms? Like he was throwing around millions, like it was just normal every day. I get stressed when like just like a an eight hour day of work, like pretty laid back work too. Uh, I and when it comes to money, no, I just it, it makes it it made my heart like beat faster as he's talking about the amount of money that he deals with, um, and it's an amount of money that I I, I like no like I shouldn't even win I, I I shouldn't win money I shouldn't be have access to that much money because I would just my my heart would pump out of its chest out of my chest, um, but uh, yeah, what was what was there like? Did you have a favorite thing from the interview? You know. It was very informative learning about venture capitalism and, and the culture of that. It's something that's becoming more and more present in this country, and nobody really knows what the hell's going on. So that was great. I also like how he took on our questions at the end about investing, and he took on our questions about where we're going um, as a startup culture. And I thought that was very, very interesting. So we'd love to have Eric on again, you know, whenever he wants to come on and tell us more crazy stories. Maybe when he gets another company that produces a product like the BB-8 or another drone company or something like that. That was quite fascinating. Yeah, and if he wants to send one our way, like that would be pretty sweet. Product uh, testers. Yeah, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm even more excited for what we've got coming up. Our next podcast, we're going to be talking to Christina Taylor. Um, she is one of our contributors on the folkrestore.com site. She has written stuff. She's a formal, former journalist um, and has great insight to a lot of the stuff that is – a lot of the news stories that are, that are coming out in the past you know, three months. Um, she just recently wrote an article about um, the interview with Sean Penn on 60 Minutes uh, about his interview with – is it El Chapo? El Chapo. El Chapo. Jealous of that and, mustache, chaps. <laughs> and kind of her perspective from uh, from a, as a former journalist. And um, it's it's just a really good look in, at, at that world and, and why that's important. And um, so I'm excited to have her on and introduce, you, uh, and introduce her to you guys and uh, learn a little bit more about her because you're going to be seeing more of her stuff down the line. Is that it, Rob? Is that all we got? No, I just want to thank all the listeners for being with us on these this wild ride and, and helping us through our, our little startup mentality. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. And with that, we'll see you guys later. Later.